These foods are weapons of mass destruction in our neighborhoods and communities. The fight for health justice and equity often begins with a simple conversation. So let's start it here on Black Body Health, the podcast. I'm Natasha Phelps, lawyer, director at the Center for Black Health and Equity, and your friendly host. Let's get into it. How are you, family? How are you, podcast listeners? Uh, What is spring feeling like for you so far? Is it spring yet? I'm not sure actually what the official first day of spring is, but I'm feeling like it's getting a little warmer. I'm in Minnesota, so the snow is melting a little bit. You're starting to see all the trash that was hiding in the snow. Uh, But the fact that it's getting a little bit warmer is is, is, uh, really enhancing my mood a little bit. But, you know, I think right now how I'm feeling is very much like I need to stay hydrated. I don't know how how you're feeling right now, but for for me, with the spring coming in, I just really want to make sure I'm hydrated and moisturized. So like for me, I'm drinking a lot of water, drinking a lot of herbal tea. I'm misting my skin. I'm keeping the moisture in my skin with moisturizer and oil. And I don't know, there's just something about being hydrated right now that I'm really into at the moment uh, with spring coming about. And I guess maybe knowing that warmer weather is coming, but I hope that you are uh, feeling a little bit more hopeful with uh, the the weather becoming a little bit warmer, uh, depending on where you are uh, in around the world, actually, because we have some listeners who are listening outside of the United States, outside of North America. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. But here where I am in Minnesota, in the United States, it is spring, and I am so happy to be going into this new season of 2022 with a little bit more warmth, a little bit more hydration, and a little bit of hope for something new. We have an excellent episode today uh, to really talk about some vital issues when it comes to Black health. But before we do that, you know I have to start to talk about the Center for Black Health and Equity and what's going on at the center. There's always really amazing work being done and really great things that we have going on. So I'd like for all of you to mark your calendars because in just about a month, two months, we have No Menthol Sunday, which is a really, really excellent event. No Menthol Sunday is a national observance day led by the center. And it's an opportunity to engage with faith leaders and the community in a discussion about how to improve health outcomes for African-Americans and specifically really focusing on commercial tobacco, still being the number one killer of African-Americans since it drives the top three leading causes of death for African-Americans and substantially increases the likelihood of developing the fourth leading cause of death for African-Americans, which is diabetes. And so No Menthol Sunday is really about gathering and encouraging and supporting people of faith who can play a major role in changing this. So not only do we take this day to encourage congregations and communities to support one another in addressing nicotine addiction um, and also informing about the predatory tobacco industry, but we also aim to highlight the role of menthol and flavors in commercial tobacco products in particular. So please mark your calendar, May 15th, No Menthol Sunday. There will be lots of opportunities to participate. And just, again, if you're not on our listserv or following us on social media, please do that. You can go to our website at centerforblackhealth.org to sign up for our mailing list. 
And you can also find us on social media at Center for Black Health on Instagram and Facebook and Center for BH on Twitter. We also had a really great discussion recently on, a, on February 25th uh, with the Black Press USA. Uh, it was a webinar discussion with Dr. Nisenga Burton, Dr. Corey Herbert, and Delmani Jefferson about misinformation. And it was a part of our Truth Check campaign, which you may have mentioned, you may have heard me mention in earlier episodes, but it's really about uh, misinformation in the Black community and how the Truth Check campaign is teaching the skills that we need uh, to spot that type of mis and disinformation on social media. So uh, look in the show notes below for a recording of that great discussion um, that took place on February 25th. And again, if you have not already taken our Truth Check training, you can do so by going to thetruthcheck.org. Okay, so February just ended, um, but at the time that I'm recording this podcast, and it was Black History Month, yes, but it was also Heart Health Month. Uh, which is really on point with the discussion we're going to be having today, along with the fact that March this month is National Nutrition Month. So it's really important when we're talking about about Black health that we're really talking about heart health and nutrition, what that really means, how it can affect our health. National Nutrition Month is an annual campaign that was created by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics um, and this, the theme of this year is celebrating a world of flavors. So it's this idea that there are so many healthy food options around the world um, that really taste great without all of the harmful ingredients that go into so many uh, prepared foods. So it's really about this month, uh, National Tr Nutrition Month, celebrating a world of flavors is about embracing the foods and flavors of your heritage and other global cultures. Um, so kind of getting curious and learning more about what types of foods maybe your ancestors ate or that, you know, there are communities around the country that are returning to gardening and farming and figuring out healthy recipes that actually taste really good and, and often better uh, than prepared foods once you actually kick the habit of um, you know, being used to the taste of prepared foods too. So you can uh, check out some resources like eatright.org for healthy eating ideas. But then we have a guest today who's actually going to be giving us some tips about how to eat healthier, why we might want to eat healthier, um, and some of the issues surrounding heart health and nutrition um, that I'm really excited to talk about today. So our guest for today is our food and nutrition program manager, Holly Branch. Holly, are you there? I'm here. How are you, Natasha? Thank you for having me. I'm doing so well. Thank you so much, Holly, for, for joining me on the podcast. Uh, how are you doing? Great. It's National Nutrition Month, so I'm really, really happy. I have a soapbox for the whole month. <laughs> well, we want you to get on that soapbox today, okay? Do, do not hold back. Mm -hmm. uh, Holly, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I mean, you, you, you're so, such an interesting person. You have so much experience related to the topic today of uh, nutrition and heart health, especially when it comes to Black health. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself so that people can get to know you a little bit better? So I'm a registered and licensed dietitian. I have had experience as a uh, WIC director for Durham County. And I have also worked with uh, Native Americans on reservations um, in 
uh, Arizona and New Mexico. I have also worked closely with diabetes clients and clients that uh, suffer from obesity and overweight issues. So lots of experience. One of the things that really got me into this work is I was an educator for Cleveland schools and I worked with a, a specific population of young ladies that were pregnant and they were trying to get their GED or high school diploma and they brought their children to school with them. And these were young babies. And what I saw were generational eating problems that just made me scratch my head and made me want to help them. And so I decided to go back to school and figure this out, how I could communicate this message and break some of these generational um, eating patterns that plague our community. And, you know, I like to say to my clients that DNA is one issue. Yes, we come with DNA and we come with history, but you know what? Lifestyle pulls the trigger. So DNA loads the gun, lifestyle pulls the trigger. And we want to mm. educate the community about not pulling the trigger and doing better. DNA does not have to be um, our fate. Great. Thank you, Holly. And you know, you in your introduction, you really mentioned something that I think is important to note that you've that you've worked with different groups of communities that have their own unique nutritional issues. Um, and, and even before the show, when we were kind of talking about what we would be addressing, one of the things that you that you brought up for me was this idea that, you know, nutrition issues look different depending on, you know, the population that you're talking about, the type of nutrition provided. So like, you know, talking about nutrition uh, for the general public or when you're talking about incarcerated people versus, you know, school, school lunch. Um, that that discussion uh, can look different depending on the population. And you just mentioned several groups that you've worked with in the past that have their own uh, unique nutrition um, issues that cause unique health outcomes. So I just think that that was really interesting that you noted in your um, intro. Thank you. So how, you know, it's this concept of health and what health means, obviously, um, is informed by the systems that you know create opportunities and the social, economic, and environmental conditions in which we all live. And so, when it comes to you know nutrition and its impact on our health, obviously you, we can't talk about that without mentioning health inequities and structural and systemic racism in this country. Certainly, that that type of structural and systemic racism that has led to you know industries taking advantage and really bombarding communities, um, not only with manipulative advertising, uh, but then also flooding neighborhoods uh, with products and retailers that don't, that, that basically do not support a healthy lifestyle. So, you know, when it comes to even menthol cigarettes, and having high density, having a lot of re tobacco retailers in an area um, where there are, it's basically a, a high African-American, low socioeconomic population is an example of an industry really um, taking advantage of things like zoning and licensing regulations to ensure they can saturate that community with, you know, minty poison. And this, and the same is really true when it comes to nutrition as well, that, that we see a lot of 
you know, excessive number of fast food restaurants in black neighborhoods or a lack of, uh, you know, full service grocery stores. So the idea that there are these systemic um, and, and, and structural um, factors in place that really you know, make it difficult to um, try to be healthy when you want to be healthy. I think that's something that we're going to keep returning to during this discussion. But I really want to turn to the idea of heart health and sodium um, and, you know, all of the things related to health outcomes that are caused by sodium intake. And so just for those of you who are unaware, um, the Center for Disease Control uh, says that heart disease is a leading cause of death in the United States. So there's about uh, 660,000 people um, die from heart disease each year. And the risk factors for heart disease include things like high blood pressure, high blood cholesterol, smoking, diabetes, being overweight or obese, unhealthy diet, you know, little to no physical activity, excessive alcohol intake. And so, um, you know, all of these factors can lead to heart disease, which is the leading cause of death in the United States. And the Department of Health and Human Services reported that African-Americans uh, were significantly more likely to die from heart disease than non-Hispanic white people. Um, so although African-American adults are 40% more likely to have high blood pressure, um, they are less likely than non-Hispanic whites to actually have that high blood pressure condition under control. Um, and so that's another component when we're talking about heart disease and these conditions that can lead to heart disease is not only having these conditions, but then maintaining these conditions, not only with medication, but then also with diet, physical activity, et cetera. Also something like sodium intake is a huge um, indicator when it comes to high blood pressure and thus heart disease. So excess dietary sodium raises the risk for high blood pressure and its cardiovascular health consequences like heart disease, but also stroke um, significantly. And more than 70% of total sodium intake um, in the United States is from sodium added during food manufacturing and commercial food preparation. So the idea that there are people who are who who, who eat a majority of their diet from already prepared foods, um, knowing that sodium intake is really a huge um, a huge problem and and added into those prepared foods is very concerning especially when we know of these health disparities with African-Americans, um, sodium intake, uh, hypertension, and thus heart disease. And so we really need to be thinking about what it looks like to um, reduce sodium intake, to make people aware of sodium intake in foods. Um, and one way of doing that is, is talking about nutritional, nutrition labeling of sodium. So let's talk about that, the nutrition labeling of sodium for food manufacturers and for restaurants. Holly, I'm aware that the FDA recently released some guidance on um, sodium uh, labeling. And could you tell us a little bit about that and tell us also as a nutritionist, what are your thoughts on those guidelines? I'm hearing a lot of people say that they don't do enough to address these health inequities that we see for African-Americans um, high blood pressure and heart disease concerns. So you, you are correct in saying that um, the majority or a lot of sodium is coming because of uh, the food swamps that we have in our communities. Um, they're filled with calories, um, high calorie foods and foods that are loaded with lots of sodium. And so the goal is for people to understand how to read labels. 
so they can take action and be their own nutritionist and making proper uh, decisions about the foods that they consume. So we do know that in our communities, they are uh, plagued with high blood pressure, all of that, like you uh, said. And part of the problem is because um, if you're going to a particular restaurant, you may get one particular food item and it may have more than the days or double the day's recommended dose of sodium. So we know on average that uh, the average American consumes about 3,400 milligrams of sodium per day. So that's 50% more than the 2,300 milligram limit that was recommended by the FDA. Um, and we know that most adolescents, they like fast foods, they like salty foods, they like chips and all of that. Their numbers are up as well as children. So mm -hmm. too much sodium, we see children with high blood pressure. So this is a great risk factor for heart disease and stroke. And we want people to make informed decisions. We want parents to make informed decisions about the foods that they eat. Many times it's not coming again from the process, I mean, from the foods that you make at home. It's coming from the processed, packaged and prepared foods and not from the table salt that's added. You know, you think about, you make a pot of greens and you add salt there. You're not gonna eat the whole pot of greens by yourself and consume all that. You're gonna take a small portion. But what is happening is that in order to make these foods taste delicious and tantalizing to the day taste buds, they put lots of sodium, one to preserve it and to make it taste good and make you a returned customer. I like to say that these foods are weapons of mass destruction in our neighborhoods and communities. One, we know the results of what happened with COVID. Um, people that had these underlying risk factors, you know, had real difficulties surviving COVID. So we want to make sure that we're we are uh, reading labels. It's really important that you're looking at labels so that if you see a food that is um, over 2,300 milligrams, which is the limit. Now, an African-American, now how I would counsel my client, I would say, if you're African-American, if you're at risk, you want to limit your sodium to about 1,500 milligrams a day because even that is, that is, that is a lot of sodium. Um, 2,300, to put it in perspective, is like close to a teaspoon. So close to a teaspoon is the recommended limit. But if you are at risk already and you're in a community that is at risk, then you want to take that even lower. So some of the food items that you see at fast food restaurants have over 2,300 milligrams. So it would behoove us to make sure we are reading the labels. And if you don't know how, you're not sure about the milligrams, you forget about 2,300, then look at the daily percent daily value and something really good. If you look at a label, you'll see the milligrams by each nutrient. And then you'll see in that last column, you'll see percent daily value. You wanna look at that and look at something that's 5% to 10%, that would be low. 10% to 15%, that would be mid-level. Anything over 20% on any food label would be really just too much sodium for you to have. I mean, that would take you over, yes. Well, I just, I, I think you were about to get to it. So I shouldn't have cut you off, but I'm just, I'm curious when you say 
check the food label and see and one easy way of doing it is checking the food label and looking at the percentage the daily value that's based on the fda's guidance of 2300 milligrams yes. right so okay so if you were well, trying to aim lower than that that's why right. you're saying five to ten percent right and that's a low sodium food and it's actually based upon the calories that someone would would uh, uh, eat a 20 a 2000 calorie diet and it's looking at the percent daily value of all the foods that you would eat in a day so a hundred percent if you're eating to, you know, 20%, you, you are getting there, you're getting close to it. So you want to make sure that you're not eating that one single food item that's going to take you over 20%. So if you had, let's just say you had a burger and you went to one of these restaurants and you looked at the menu and you saw that it had 2,300 or 2,500 milligrams of sodium, well, that's just one meal. What about breakfast? What about dinner? What about a snack? So you have to make sure you're reading the labels because this adds up. And um, if you look, not only in our communities, do we have the food swamps and food deserts that don't allow us to have the um, choices that other neighborhoods have, but you also have the results. You have dialysis centers mixed into these neighborhoods, you know? So it's quite curious because once if you have diabetes and if you're overweight and if you have high blood pressure and you are intaking too much sodium, you damage your kidneys. And this is why we have a lot of these dialysis centers in our neighborhoods, because when you eat these foods and you have several of these um, health related diseases, they can add to uh, losing your kidneys or not having your kidney function best to it to the best ability that it can. So you definitely have to watch your sodium intake. One, you don't want high blood pressure. Two, you don't want heart disease. And you definitely don't want to damage your kidneys, especially if you have um, diabetes. That's just a bad combination to have high blood pressure and diabetes at the same time. So those are all things that we need to think about in our community and ask ourselves, why do we have these places? Why do we have so many? Because it is a manipulation of nutrition for profit and power. And that's what we want to educate. It's more for the big business to make money and, and come out successful, but it's not for you to come out successful. And it's not the way that we used to eat uh, long ago. These places have popped up. You know, I listened to my father tell the story of, you know, how he had a sandwich and he walked to school with his one sandwich. It wasn't a plethora of fast food places all over the place. And the more nutritious foods you eat that are not in a package, you know, you get more variety. And that is the theme with the National Nutrition Month is celebrate a world of flavors, a world of different foods, a variety of foods, because all of those foods are gonna give you the prevention you need. You know, your red colors, they help and have lycopene and help um, you know, cut your risk for cancer and your orange foods like your carrots and yams and potatoes, they have beta carotene that supports your um, immune system. It's a powerful antioxidant. And then your yellow and orange fruits, lots of vitamin C, your green, like your kale and collard greens and turnip greens have lots of folate and they help to build cell and genetic material. And then you have your blues, your blueberries, lots of, um, a radical destroying um, power in those type foods, red in your purple foods, grapes, they help to decrease uh, estrogen production. So 
um, all of these foods that I uh, talked about, different colors and variety, they have lots of fiber and that's the key to it all. So when you do look at your nutrition label, you want the only thing you want to be high is the fiber because that's the key to it all. The more fiber you eat, the more um, nutrients you're going to get. And it cleanse helps to cleanse your digestive tract to get the excess fat out, to get um, absorb the extra uh, cholesterol, to absorb, absorb the extra toxins. So that's why we want to eat more fiber. And we know that most of us are not eating enough fiber every day. So National Nutrition, Nutrition Month gives us that opportunity to kind of take a breath and think about what it is we're eating. National, I didn't, I didn't really mention it, but I, I would like to say that it's an annual campaign. It was created by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. And the goal is just to encourage everyone to make healthy choices, healthy informed choices, like reading your nutrition fact label. So even if you go to a restaurant and it's not there, you can, we all have smartphones. You can Google it before you get to the restaurant. You can Google it before you look at uh, the menu. We're hoping in Cleveland that we can um, put sodium warning labels on foods that are in excess of the 1500 or 2300 uh, milligram limit. So people who are at risk that already have diabetes, already have high blood pressure, already have heart issues, that they're aware that's going, uh, what's going into their mouth because you know, how, how you win this game is you're careful about everything you put on the end of your fork because it's either going to give you life or it's going to give you death. And we want to eat these foods that are rich in nutrients that are going to give you lots of life preventative, um, helpful tips or helpful um, foods in your body. Yes, absolutely. And I, you know, I think that's, that's the the thing. There are so many helpful tips that you've just given us to eat better. And then, you know, with the FDA guidance, the approach to kind of gradually reduce sodium across a food, food supply chain over the coming years, you know, that's great. But it's this idea that like, we are like, can we rely on agencies, departments that are responsible for, you know, regulating these major industries, which like you said, are out for profit, you know, to keep their food on the shelves longer, um, you know, to preserve them, to add preservatives, to add things like salt, to keep them on the shelves longer, to keep them tasting tastier or keep, you know, to manipulate your taste buds to make it seem like that food is tastier than these whole foods that you're mentioning. It's really important that, you know, we make the necessary steps now to reduce our own sodium levels. Because like you said, you know, these issues, people who already have diabetes or pre-diabetic or people who already have high blood pressure or at risk of developing that, these are problems that are facing the black community right now. And so the idea that, you know, guidance at federal guidance or will will eventually lead to a not even um, significant enough decrease to these sodium levels that are healthy. It means that, you know, it's important for us to start doing our own education and our own um, work to really identify what it means to eat healthy. And so I love that concept of eating colorly. Um, and I think that that, that is, is, is a fun challenge to, to just, even if you don't change anything, just to start to look at what, 
what your plates look like. What are the colors like on the plates that you're eating right now? Um, I think that would be interesting if you're if you're seeing that there's not a rainbow on your plate, that you're not eating any anything that's green, anything that's blue, anything that's orange. Um, you know, what are you missing? And it helps connect us connect us to the earth. And Holly, something that you mentioned, I just wanted to ask you more about, uh, you mentioned your dad, you know, walking to school with the sandwich and the fact that we haven't always eaten like this. It feels like a lot of people today, you know, kind of scoff at the idea of eating healthier or, you know, returning to eating whole foods because we become so accustomed to eating the way that we do. Um, Do you find that in your nutrition practice that that's something people have to overcome? Yeah, you know, we do things a lot different now. And as I said, my dad, you know, he grew up on a farm and um, he had to work in the morning before. So he didn't eat first thing. He went to work first thing on the farm. Uh, My grandfather was a sharecropper. And so when food was made, it was really just two meals. And that's one thing we need to be mindful about. We should not act like we're cows and we have to graze all day long. You know, you have to be very mindful about when you eat your meals. Um, The reason being is because our lifestyle is not as active as it used to be. You know, they didn't eat as much as they eat now. They didn't have as many choices, fast food choices. I mean, I remember when I was a kid going to the grocery store, it it's overwhelming now when you go to the grocery store. There's so many aisles and so many things to to see. I'm probably telling my age, but you know, you had a you know a rather conservative grocery store. It wasn't very huge, but you didn't have rows and rows and rows of um, processed and prepackaged foods. And that's really how I tell my uh, clients to shop, to shop the perimeter of the grocery store. When you go in, shop the perimeter, go to the fresh fruits and vegetables first, then make it over to the dairy section, make it over to the meat section and get the lean cuts of meat. Then, you know, keep working on the outside to the bakery where you get your fresh whole grain breads. And then if you have to go in the middle section, go for one or two items. But you know, the wealth of our health is on the perimeter of the grocery store. And when, um, you know, just like with the uh, native culture, African-American culture, they did a lot of things. They did a lot of hunting. They did a lot of farming. They had to catch the animal. So you catch the animal, you go hunt the animal. You're not eating chicken every single meal. You're not eating a burger every single meal. They were very selective and lived a lot longer with a lot less um, comorbidities and issues. So how do they do that? They knew something, right? They Right. And Holly, don't you feel like too, they were like connected to the food, because it, I mean, you bring up meat for for just you know one of many examples, but the idea that you're so disconnected from the process of how your food came to be right, right. in front of you on your plate. Exactly, and you know, it took effort. You know, I remember being on the farm with my uh, father and a, a family reunion. You know, I saw what it took to to have a piece of chicken or to have uh, another type of animal cooked up, you know, that was a lot of work, cutting and skidding. So now we have so many choices. We just hop in our car, sit in the car. We don't even get out of the car, roll down the window and say, can I have this, this, and this, and move on to the next place and the next place. And that 
is the sitting and not being as active. You know, we have these desk jobs. A lot of us have, are working from home. And the sitting now is your new cigarette smoking because we're not as active. And there's a whole plethora of issues that happen from that. So not only eating healthy, but also being active. And I like what you said in the beginning, you were being hot, you were hydrating yourself. We've got to drink more water. These food, uh, these beverages have so much sugar loaded in them. Most people don't know that one can of soda has about nine teaspoons of sugar, nine teaspoons of sugar. So, you know, I had one client that told me, oh, I'm no longer drinking soda. Now I'm drinking Tang. Well, that's just as bad. One glass of Tang has about 11 to 12 teaspoons of sugar. So we have to- And Holly, what about I'm no longer drinking soda, I'm drinking diet soda? Well, there's a whole issue with that. You know, we need to condition ourselves to drink water. And if you want some flavor in it, add some nice berries, some slice of lemon, some lime, some oranges, heck, some watermelon, any kind of fruit that you want or vegetables or herbs like basil and mint. You can do all of that to make your water spice, spicy or um, more delicious. You could throw cinnamon sticks in your water to give it some flavor, but our bodies are made up of over 60 to 70% water. You know, our brain requires 80% water. All of our organs require water. So they're not asking, your body and its organs are not asking for a soda or some Kool-Aid or, uh, you know, any of these sugary beverages that they have on the market to make money, your body is asking for water. So when you are drinking your calories, such as juice, if you're drinking juice, you're missing out on the orange and apple and the fiber you would have gotten from that. So if you eat the orange or the apple, then your, your um, food is digested a lot slower when we drink our calories like uh, soda, juice, whatever sugary beverages out there, when you drink that, it raises your blood sugars up rather quickly. But when you eat an apple or you eat an orange or you have some grapes, then it metabolizes really slow. And it does not, because of the fiber, it slows all of that down. And that way you don't have spikes in your sugar, I mean, in your um, blood glucose. So just another tip, Eat your fruit and vegetables and don't drink them. Drink water. So that's a challenge. Drink more water. Avoid all of the sugary beverages that are out there. Um, with the diet sodas, they tend to kind of fool your body. And we don't want to fool our body into doing things. And then there's another problem with that. You read any uh, label with diet sodas or diet drinks, it's just too many ingredients. How about just water or just juice? If I'm going to have juice, let it be 100% juice and then limit that to no more than six to eight ounces for the day if you're an adult and if you're a child, no more than four ounces. So that's, that's the condition we're in. It's loaded with sugar to make it taste good, um, to tantalize your taste buds, but it's not good for your overall nutrition. And we need to go back to the way that they did things back in the day, um, you know, except for the iced tea with lo loaded with sugar. I remember grandma did that. That, that was not a good thing. <laughs> yes. But I actually, I'm one of those people, I really like unsweetened tea. I, I really, I don't like sweet tea. I, I, I'm sorry. Don't come, don't come for me, please. Okay. Really okay. That's good. That's, that's great. <laughs> 
Holly, let's talk about something you mentioned, the idea of choices and having available choices. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like shopping the perimeter of a grocery store, that the wealth of our health is really around the perimeter where foods are more fresh and the, you know, there's more color, all of these things that you've, that you've mentioned, but how sometimes these choices are inaccessible in certain neighborhoods. So you had talked about just looking around some neighborhoods and just seeing, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, what it looks like really reflecting the health of the community. So having places like where there's family dollars or dollar trees, where it looks like there aren't any full service grocery stores. There are payday loan mm-hmm. uh, uh, spaces, dialysis centers, um, you know, but, but, but the fact that the neighborhood reflects the health, uh, uh, the predominant health outcomes of the neighborhood, because there may be a lack of choices. There may be a grocery, full service grocery stores, you know, far away from where people live. And, and, and in a lot of those neighborhoods, you know, the access to transportation is much less than other areas. Maybe people that live there are on fixed or low income. Gas is becoming more expensive. Public transportation may not um, be necessarily accessible especially if you have a disability. And actually, there was an article that I recently read about a neighborhood in North Memphis in Tennessee that is really the definition of what so many call a food desert or some people call actually an unhealthy food swamp where the family dollars or these dollar trees have really you know, flooded these neighborhoods um, and become licensed and, you know, zoned for this type of business and said that they're a food source for people that live in these neighborhoods, but they actually don't provide any fresh food um, or, you know, they're not a fresh food accessibility point. And then often they close. And so, um, you know, that's what's happening right now in North Memphis, where there were there was a closure of the family dollar stores in the Memphis area, and so people were struggling um, who used these family dollars as a primary food source, um, and so they were having a lot of trouble going even just three miles away to a full service grocery store because of the rising cost of gas, people's um, you know lack of employment and ability to even uh, afford transportation. So what? What I'm wondering is what we do to address the issue of food deserts or, um, like I said, unhealthy food swamps um, with, when, when you want to make healthier choices and you want to eat more co- you know, colorful foods and fiber dense foods and all of that. What are, some, what are some things that we can do as a community or as a, you know, as a country or as individuals when we're faced with this problem? Well, we have to meet people where we are, where they are, and we know that um, change has to happen. Policy change has to happen for many of these things to take place. Um, with the food desert, if you're, you are in a food desert, I would still implore you to read the label and make the best choice that you can make, looking at the fat, the sugar, and the um, sodium. Um, and the food swamps, like you said, they're one and the same. One of the things that the center is doing right now, we have an initiative in um, Atlanta and New Orleans where we're trying to pass legislation by getting the community involved and helping them to understand that they have been, again, manipulated 
um, with the sale of certain things, making, um, having an understanding, helping the store owners to understand it's very, um, it's very important for the community to feel like they have access. There's many studies out there that do indicate communities do want access. Um, they want to have access to healthy foods. They want to make healthy choices. But like you say, uh, these food deserts, you know, just the checkout, it's, it's inundated with candy and chips and uh, encouraging parents. And especially if you have a child you take into the store to make impulse buys that don't benefit anyone. Again, it just creates more of mass destruction for our families. So you have to educate the community about um, demanding certain things to happen. Um, they ha we have to hear from the community that there is a better way that you can eat um, certain ways, but if we all work together, we can change the community and um, how they bring things to us, how they position foods in the store. You know, they're manipulated by um, the checkout aisle, they're manipulated by, you know, certain foods at the end of the um, grocery stores, or um, you do have some grocery stores, even like your Walmart, or they may have a lot of soda at the end of the aisle, and those are called endpoints. So cleaning up the endpoints where they have healthier options so that their brain is not making connection with, oh, that's a lot, there's soda, it's on sale. And maybe there is a campaign to keep soda in the soda aisle so that you can walk by and make other choices, healthier choices without being manipulated. This is all, again, manipulation of nutrition for profit and power, even with the very placement promotion or lack of promotion in the grocery store. So again, making the community aware, um, creating uh, coalitions throughout the United States demanding that they have a voice in the grocery store as well uh, so that they can make informed choices at the restaurant and in the grocery store and have access so that we don't have these food deserts. So policy um, and community education, I think is the way to go, uh, but making the community aware that you do have some control to take um, your nutrition intake into your own hands by reading the label, whether you're at the grocery store or whether you're in the uh, going to a fast food restaurant. Yeah, thank you so much, Holly. That, that all makes so much sense. Um, and, you know, I just I, I every every time we talk about nutrition and unhealthy retail spaces for nutrition, I just see such a clear alignment with the tobacco issue as well. You know, with the fact that they're at the point of sale or at these endpoints, there's these unhealthy nutrition options. But then there's also you know this idea of this power tobacco power wall, or you know, or the you know these vape flavors right next to the candy. You know, it's all right. this. You know, it's this idea of when you look at a neighborhood and you can see like what the what what the likely health outcomes are of the residents in that neighborhood. You also can go into the retail settings and just see that, you know, that major industry greed and the the idea of, you know, they know what they're doing when it comes to marketing and, and getting people to make these impulse purchases, these unhealthy impulse purchases, purchases that feed addiction, et cetera. So sure. I just think it's very great, like you said, to really be educating people about this um, so they're aware and they can build that community, you know, that community building and capacity um, and, and, and really educate themselves and push for local policy change too. 
Um, And I I really want to talk a little bit more about the policy piece and and kind of tie it into another solution um, that I'm, I'm curious about. The the state of New Jersey recently uh, passed a, 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 a piece of legislation that's called the Food Desert Relief Act as a part of the Economic Recovery Act. Um, it was signed into law last year, January 2021, and the act really um, directs um, the the state to address the food security needs of communities across the state of New Jersey by providing $40 million per year for six year for six years in in these different um, it, through these different channels, basically tax credits or loans or grants or technical assistance to um, increase access to nutritious foods and to you know I guess eventually develop these approaches to alleviate these food deserts or these unhealthy food swamps. Um, and so, if if the purpose of reducing food insecurity and addressing um, these these unhealthy food swamps um, if that's the purpose of funding like this, and there are there are things like tax credits and loans and grants, I'm thinking too. What about farming? And what about urban farming? What about you know having um, funding for farmers that are in rural areas to um, provide or, or or for people to be able to use any type of assistance that they receive, food assistance that they receive, um, to go to farms to receive um, you know healthy food options that maybe they're cheaper um, or maybe they are you know, a, a resource for education. And I know, Holly, I, I recently learned <laughs> that only 1.5% of, of farm, please correct me if I'm getting this wrong, 1.5% of farmers in the United States are Black, and you are one of them, Holly. You have a farm, which I just learned about. <laughs> yeah. You so know, can you talk look- about the importance of, 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 you know, African-Americans and farming and, and just being more educated about, um, you know, growing your own food or, or finding access to, um, you know, um, agriculture um, and, and, and really having a point of uh, being able to go and get healthy foods even outside of a full service grocery store. Yeah, I, I think um, it's real important uh, to be self-sufficient and learn how to be self-sufficient. Um, back in the 40s, I think 30s or 40s, I think it was about 14% of the farms are black owned, and now it's 1.5%. So I'm proud to be 1.5. As I said, um, my grandfather had about 120 acres and actually more, but you know, it's down to 120 acres now, and he was a sharecropper. And our family, we just made a pact. My grandmother did not want us to sell, so we've been holding on to the property. Um, and it's real important uh, to um, support Black farmers just because of all of the inequities on the fairness of getting loans and just the support, you know, if crops don't grow, they've been denied that access due to um, the racial discrimination for Black farmers in this country. So it's really important to support them. It's really important to know how to farm. It's really important to be self-sufficient. One of the stories that my father told me, they were very poor, very, very poor, but he didn't realize that they were poor until he moved away (laughs) because He grew up during the Great Depression and they always had food. So this is something that we really need to have that understanding that, you know, anything can happen. But if you don't know how to grow food and one of the things that I saw my grandmother do was 
grow the food, pick the food, can the food. And her pantry was just amazing. So this is an art that is has been lost. And I think it's an art that we need to recover, especially if we treat food as medicine. And as I said, all of the different colors represent some medicinal property that that food can give to you. So this is why we need to be supportive of our Black farmers, help um, support them with policy passage, um, help support them when you find out in your neighbor. I think you should make it your business in every community to find out how many Black farmers are in your neighborhood and support them. Um, yeah, I think urban farming is important. It's great. It's a way to um, get everybody involved. I think uh, there's a whole new generation that just doesn't understand the importance of eating collard greens. I actually worked, used to work with a group, as I said, in Cleveland, a group of young ladies that had never tasted so many common vegetables that I had, you know, grown up with like greens or lima beans or pinto beans. So helping people to understand that these are affordable foods, and especially if you can do it yourself and put something away for a rainy day. Um, I did do a project when I was a WIC director with Durham County, and it was one of the first um, time in Durham County that we did this and we partnered with their farmer's market program so that the WIC participants could use their WIC coupons at the farmer's market. I mean, right. it's stuff like that. We need to, you know, pass laws or look at WIC in a different way. You know, they are, they have a certain diet or certain foods that they are getting, but you know, it's canned, it's frozen, it's fresh, but how about fresh from the ground? And you are supporting the local farmers and you're allowing them to use right. their government subsidies at the farmer's market. So yeah, I, I support all of that and think again, that you should make it your business of whatever community you live in, who are the black farmers, where are they and how can I support them? Absolutely. And, you know, the idea that policies that are trying to address food insecurity um, would could be a mutually beneficial situation for also supporting farmers I think is just a you know a no-brainer right. um, so I, I really I really love that and the idea of people being able to use um, you know benefits that they receive uh, for nutrition benefits that they receive at places like farmers markets I you know think that you mentioned something that people just don't really talk about very much, which is like the art of preservation of food, um, because we just kind of assume that that's not something we can do. That's something that, you know, companies do, you know, we don't know how to put something in a can and, you know, have it sit on our shelves for a long time, but canning and uh, pr preserving uh, fruits and vegetables is definitely an, a lost art or, a, you know, an art that a lot of people could benefit from because I think a lot of people don't buy produce because they're like, well, it's just going to go bad in my fridge. But, you know, one thing I learned, I think last year or maybe two years ago is, you know, if you have carrots, you know, cutting up the carrots and putting them in water in it, like a glass jar and putting them in water in the fridge, they last for a really long time. And I did, or lemons, you know, mm -hmm. lemons being in a glass jar. And I just wouldn't have thought about that, but it's exactly what you're talking about is we don't really talk about how to preserve and make our produce last for a while, making sauces, things like right. that. Mm -hmm. And then we don't have to, you know, buy a 
a jar of Prego because we already made tomato sauce from a bunch of tomatoes that we had or, you know, something like that. And you can even save your own seeds. After you eat something that has a seed, you can save the seed and grow something with that seed. You know, simple things like that. And not only that, is that when you go to the grocery store, they have a sale on something, you can buy an excess and you can blanch it or you can wash it and throw it in the freezer. And you have you have saved yourself some money. You've got a deal and you have an excess for a rainy day or whenever you don't want to spend some money. You can just look in your fridge and there it is. So these are all things that um, we can do. We don't have to be a slave to the food swamps or the food deserts. We can take our nutrition into our own hands and be our nutritionists for not only um, for yourselves, but for your children, for your community and to better this, to better you know, our, our neighborhoods. You know, Holly, there are so many good ideas that you've given just on this episode alone. Um, and, and I don't know for those of you listening, maybe you're in a place where, you know, you haven't been necessarily happy with the way that, um, your nutrition has been looking for, you know, maybe a really long time, maybe your entire life, maybe you were doing, you know, kind of being very conscious about where you were eating. Um, but then, you know, the pandemic hit, you know, having mental health issues, maybe that has kind of gotten in the way of, um, you know, being intentional about eating and things like that. There are so many reasons why it's so difficult to, um, you know, be alive today and really be intentional intentional about the food that you're eating and, and, and make healthy choices, especially when, as Holly said, we have these major industries who are really, you know, taking upon themselves to make it so enticing and so easy to um, eat foods that don't help you, that, that don't feed your life. Um, and so, and there's all these system, systemic issues, these systemic impediments. We know though, like when you're when you're building a habit, Holly, that sustainability, you know, this idea of being consistent with intentional eating and and, and food choice, um, that a lot of people is helpful, you know, to take baby steps. Going from zero to one thousand is not necessarily realistic or perhaps not sustainable for for many people. So, you know, this idea, and I'll just speak, I won't speak in nutrition, but let's talk about movement. You know, mm -hmm. if you haven't gone to the gym and you know, or not gone to the gym, but just exercise, gone on a walk for five years or something like that, saying that you're gonna take a walk or go to the gym five days a week, every week for the rest of your life maybe is not as realistic as just saying, I will go on a walk or I'm going to exercise on a weekly basis. And so that the idea of baby steps makes not giving up this habit that you're trying to build easier. Um, and then if you, if you do give up one week, it makes it easier to get back onto it. Cause you know, it's just once a week or something, something that feels sustainable to you. So this idea of the beginning stages of building a habit is about being consistent and not giving up on yourself. And that to me is about giving yourself grace. And so I'm wondering, Holly, um, you know, what people, what can we, we mentioned so many tips, but what can people do on their end to really get started on building healthy habits? If it's just one thing for them to do. Um, and then what are some resources that you would suggest for people to help them start on this journey? Okay. If you just keep in mind that food is your medicine, that is your medicine. That is your, <laughs> it's your trigger for uh, just being 
very, very healthy. So you want to start there one forkful at a time. So if you can't do a whole plate, let's start one forkful at a time. So my number one tip would be eat more fiber rich foods. So if you say, I don't know what fiber is, fiber is a fruit, a vegetable, a nut, a seed, whole grains, potatoes, sweet potatoes, it's any plant-based food is a fiber. So eat more fiber-rich foods. If you have a healthy gut and you're going to the bathroom all the time, then that is a wonderful, wonderful start. Do you know that many clients that I work with don't go to the bathroom, but once or twice a week? So that is a problem. This is how you go to the bathroom and eliminate every day eat more fiber rich foods. It is recommended you eat anywhere from 25 to 35 grams of fiber a day. If you're just eating meat, there's no fiber in meat. If you're just eating cheese, there's no fiber in cheese. So you wanna eat fresh fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, um, whole grains, potatoes, all of those things you wanna eat. Peas, beans, those are all healthy fibers. Drink more water. Read labels, those are just the top three. And then to add on a cherry on top would be get moving. And a double cherry on top would be watch when you eat. Eat your meals up in the day when you're most active. You wanna eat like a king for breakfast, a queen for lunch and a pulper or a very poor person for dinner because you're less active in the evening. You're gonna burn less calories in the evening. So if you're having your biggest meal at dinner time and you're not very active and you're laying down, that's not a good recipe for success and for overall good health. So you have to be mindful about a lot of different things. Eating fiber, drinking more water, reading labels and the time that you're eating those meals. Those are my tips. And if you're looking for support for nutrition labels, go to fda.com and they will be able to um, walk you through a nutrition label, what that looks like, learning about the um, percent daily values and the grams of sugar, salt, and fat, and then go to my plate. If you want to just the basics for getting started, how do I eat a healthy plate? Healthy plate, I'll give you a visual. You have a plate in front of you. You divide it in half. That half of it should be vegetables. The other half you're gonna divide into your proteins like your beans and your meat. And the other portion down below, you're gonna have your whole grains. So if you want seconds, go back for more vegetables and eat the meat sparingly and whole grains, eat those sparingly as well. FDA.gov for the nutrition facts and eatright.org. Plethora of different recipes, how to get started, how to um, cook a meal, tips on eating on a budget, um, tips on exercise, drinking more water, anything food related, eatright.org. And Holly, I have one last question for you. Mm -hmm. If somebody wanted to reflect on their nutrition mm -hmm. in, during, um, you know, during National Nutrition Month, what's a journal question or maybe a reflection that somebody can sit in, you know, meditation or prayer or thought? What is what is something that you might recommend somebody start with if they're if they feel very um, uncomfortable or have a lot of, um, you know, mental health struggles or triggers related to food and nutrition? What is something that you think um, 
would help for somebody to start reflecting on what their nutrition has been and, and where they're at right now. And I think a good start is uh, myplate.gov. They have a little quiz that you can take to kind of reflect, to see how are you doing? What are the things you want to do? And it's just a simple, it's just simple suggestions and simple guides on how to move forward in a positive direction um, that nutrition can take you in many diff different directions, but it's a simple start in getting getting started. If you go to myplate.gov and take the quiz, it's just about you. You don't have to interact with anyone and you can, you know, get the results and it's just coming to you. There's not a, another person um, and, and just get started with where you get comfortable, where you're comfortable. Just take baby steps, baby steps, moving forward, building new habits, you know, um, there was a study out that a new head takes about 21, 22 days to start a new hat to for a new habit to sink in. So if you just start slowly, one thing at a time, don't try and change everything. Just start with one thing. I'm going to eat my breakfast. I'm not going to skip breakfast. Start with that. I'm going to drink water. You could start with that. Just one little thing at a time will get you towards your goal if you just start. But if you do it for 21 days, it gets ingrained in your brain. You create new pathways of a new habit. So don't give up. You fall off the wagon, get up, get back on and keep moving forward. Holly Branch, thank you so much for joining us. You've given so many gems of wisdom, uh, so many tips for us to really reflect and start making uh, actions towards healthier habits during National Nutrition Month. Thank you for joining us, Holly. Thank you. My pleasure. For National Nutrition Month, what can we do to improve our nutrition just a little bit more? I know it's really hard. There's a lot going on and it may be really difficult for some of us to really take care of ourselves. But just as Holly said on today's episode, what is one baby step you can take to really improve your health? Is it going to get some fresh air during lunch? Is it telling yourself that you're going to read one nutrition label of a food item that you eat every day? Or maybe it's, I'm going to journal about colors that I see on my plate. And then Maybe the next week you incorporate a color and really reflect on, you know, what that color tastes like and how it makes you feel. Take baby steps to really think about how you can improve your health overall, because during National Nutrition Month, we want to celebrate how healthier nutrition options can really enhance the flavor of our life. So join me in taking that baby step and making healthier choices for our own health and then get involved in the community. We can take charge of the systemic and structural issues that are making it so difficult for so many communities across the country to um, have access to the foods uh, that, that really help us live and really feed our life. But whatever you choose, know that the Center for Black Health and Equity is here to support you. Again, follow us on social media at Center for Black Health on Facebook and Instagram or Center for BH on Twitter. And I will see you in the next episode. This is Black Body Health, the podcast. And until then, be well, be joyful and find rest.